you're listening to Hear This Idea. Um, sorry if I sound a little bunged up. I've got some mystery illness, which uh, turns out is kind of relevant for this episode. So recently, Luca and I have been trying to use the podcast to uh, learn a bit more about biosecurity. That is, figuring out how to, I guess, prevent or defend against uh, risks from biology, especially pandemics, with a focus on preventing really worst case outcomes. And there is obviously a huge amount to learn here. There's a bunch of different you know, approaches and solutions and perspectives, which we'll try to cover in future episodes. But something that really stands out to me about so many topics in biosecurity is that we have these problems like, you know, the world's vulnerability to pandemics that are just huge in scale, um, as most people are presumably now aware. And we also just know at least the outlines of things we can be doing. Like, we know about defensive technologies to research and accelerate. We can describe better norms for risky research. And we can even list some just really concrete policies that governments could go ahead and implement. And these are actions we could take right now that could potentially save millions of lives. Like, if we get our act together, we could just choose to prevent the next pandemic. That's wild. And yet, despite all of COVID, as far as I can tell, we just don't seem to have learned the most important lessons. Yeah, unfortunately, it's just a huge mistake to assume that because COVID happened, everything's therefore already being taken care of and you know we're finally getting our act together unfortunately there's just so much left to be done um and that seems like a very big deal so that's why we want to talk about this stuff so yeah recently i spoke to uh, a jay cupper about metagenomic sequencing which is a technology which could help us identify uh, novel pathogens and hopefully stop outbreaks before they become pandemic um, but as well as charging ahead on building those defensive technologies there's also this set of questions around whether we need to rethink uh, norms about research. And that includes whether some even very well-intentioned research could just be imposing much more risk than it plausibly helps with. Um, and that was what I wanted to mostly ask about in this interview. Yeah, so fortunately, there are few people who can speak with more credibility on those questions than Kevin Esfeldt. Uh, Esfeldt is an assistant professor at the MIT Media Lab, and he is maybe best known for proposing the idea of using CRISPR to implement uh, gene drives. That is a technology which could conceivably, for instance, help eliminate malaria by spreading infertility genes uh, among mosquitoes. Now, we don't talk about that CRISPR-based gene drive uh, much here, but Kevin did do an episode with Julia Gallif where he tells the story of deciding whether to share that discovery with the world um, and that'll be linked in the show notes. Uh, Kevin is also the director of the Sculpting Evolution Group at MIT uh, which works to advance biotechnology safely and he helped found the Secure DNA Project which we talked about in the episode. I was also joined by Jonas Sambrink who is a researcher at the Future of Humanity Institute and a fellow at both the Emerging Leaders in Biosecurity Initiative at Johns Hopkins uh, and with the Ending Bioweapons Programme at the Council on Strategic Risks. Uh, Jonas's research interests include the dual-use potential of life sciences research and biotechnology, as well as fast-response countermeasures like vaccine platforms. Yeah, we covered a ton of ground in this conversation. We um, talked about the idea of differential technological development, uh, strengthening norms against risky kinds of research, um, securely screening for misuse of DNA synthesis, gain-of-function research, how useful broad-spectrum vaccines and advanced PPE could be as measures against pandemics potentially worse than COVID, um, better ways of evaluating research proposals, analogies to the development of nuclear weapons, ways to use your career to work on these problems, even if you don't have a background in biology, 
um, and a very cool technology for sterilizing um, indoor spaces called far UVC lights. All right, I'll stop rambling. Um, please let us know what you thought about this two guest formats. If you think, think it went well, then we'll do more episodes like this. Uh, and without further ado, here's the episode. Okay, Kevin Esfelt and Jonas Sambrink, thanks for being on the show. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having us. So just to kick things off, I was wondering if both of you could describe a, a problem or a question that's been on your mind recently. And let's start with uh, Jonas. So I've been recently wrapping up some more thinking around differential technology development. And this is this idea that's been floating around um, the effective altruism community for a while. And it's goes down to the um, core idea of can we delay risk-increasing technologies and preferentially advance risk-reducing technologies. And I think this concept of differential technology development is particularly important to, the, to, to biosecurity because at its essence, it says, can we kind of hold off for developing the capability to create pandemics until we have achieved the capability to robustly contain pandemics. And I think that very much leads then into what we're discussing here, which is kind of, yeah, delaying until we can defend. And Kevin, what about yourself? This question of a uh, problem that you're currently working on. Well, to stick to the same theme, in a number of these areas relevant to biodefense and biosecurity, much of the field is focused on something like a near-term threat. That is to say, how can we screen all DNA synthesis for hazards? But that's not the only threat. We don't just want to screen synthesis for hazards that the world knows about today. We want to be able to screen for hazards that are not yet publicly known. And in order to do that, we need to solve the near-term problem that nobody else has solved. How can you do that in a cost-effective ideally fully automated way that works for all kinds of DNA synthesis and assembly machines. But we also need to do so in a way that allows the use of cryptography to screen for things without disclosing what it is that we're screening for, as well as all of the social acceptance required to get people to go along with that. And we may need to do that in competition with well-meaning folks who think they're doing one of the most important things there is, that is solving the near-term problem, but simply don't even see the longer time horizon problem. And I think this is a microcosm of the challenge before us, which is you need to head off, in some cases, even a beneficial technology in order to get a still more beneficial technology in place, just as you have to sometimes invent a safer version of something that might still be dangerous before someone else invents an extremely dangerous version that is intended to solve the same overt problem. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, I guess I wanted to start by asking about COVID. Um, so yeah, I'm assuming that we're in some kind of moment of receptivity to you know ideas about pandemic preparedness right now. And I would not agree with that. <laughs> you wouldn't agree with that. Okay, okay. No, okay. I, I think we probably passed the window of opportunity already, and people are willing to put it behind them and not think about it anymore. <laughs> okay, interesting. Um, well, I'm assuming you would agree that we did less with that window uh, than we could have while it was still open. I would broadly agree with that, but it's also 
a little bit pessimistic in the sense that it's hard to imagine anyone in government learning the right lesson from something that was probably either a natural pandemic or an accident, when what we really need them to think about is deliberate misuse. Okay. Well, let's talk about that then. So can you say something about what kinds of interventions or countermeasures uh, you'd both like to see, let's say a couple years from now, maybe up to five years from now, uh, to make sure something at least as bad as COVID doesn't happen again, especially if we're worrying, like you said, about deliberate misuse? <laughs> so I think one interesting thing to think about is that really in every intervention that we put forward and put in place for preparing against pandemics and for preventing pandemics, we should be considering, yeah, pandemics of any origin, thinking about origin, natural origins, accidental origins, deliberate origins, and then thinking, putting especially large weight on those preparations that prepares against all of these kinds, and putting maybe less weight on interventions that protect us against one and might even increase the risk for others. I think one example of something that probably helps against every pandemic is just really good pathogen detection systems so we can respond fast or developing really good PPE. Um, at the same time, if we think about um, other interventions that might uh, only protect us or help against one kind of pandemic but actually might exacerbate the risk from other pandemics. One example is well-known gain-of-function experiments, the enhancement of pandemic pathogens. If you do that kind of work to presumably help, like these scientists claim that do this work against for preparing against natural pandemics, then you might actually increase the risks for pandemics of human origin, like accidental or deliberate ones. So I think those interventions might hence be tuned back. Okay, got it. Can you say more about what's so concerning about gain-of-function research? I mean, if I'm doing this research, then presumably I expect it's going to have some benefits, you know, like any uh, scientific study. I'm going to hopefully get some useful information uh, out of it. So why seriously worry about uh, this kind of work going ahead? Oh dear, are you asking for specific benefits of <laughs> potential <laughs> pandemic pathogens? Because we're supposed to refer back to, oh, well, knowledge is generally helpful, which is true, right? I'm very sympathetic to the view that historically, learning more about a threat almost always helps us. The problem is that in this area, it looks a lot like understanding the biology doesn't help us reliably defend against pandemic class threats. This is unusual. It's not true of most areas. And in fact, it's not even true of all areas within bio. So a little bit of background, why I'm concerned about this area is I have to hold myself morally responsible for what's known as CRISPR-based gene drive, which is a way of using CRISPR genome editing to cause edited changes to be made every generation in the germline, in the inherited genome of a wild species. So essentially you program the organism to do genome editing on its own, and this causes the alteration to spread through the wild population. That technology, thankfully, favors defense. And the reason is it only spreads over generations, so it's slow. If you sequence it, it's really easy to find in sequencing data. And you show me the sequence of a gene drive you don't like, and I can reliably design a gene drive that will spread just as well will not cause the problem 
and whenever it encounters the original, we'll overwrite it. So in other words, we can reliably counter it. Anything that is slow, obvious, and easily countered is just not much of a threat. Well, what can we learn from COVID? To return to your earlier question, Omicron arose somewhere in Africa, and within 100 days of that virus being sequenced, it had infected over a quarter of Americans on the other side of the globe. Within 100 days from a single site of release. That tells us that we're not going to have time to develop, manufacture, and distribute medical countermeasures fast enough to protect the world from a future pandemic, even if it's natural or accidental, let alone something that is deliberate, which of course should not assume a single site of release somewhere well away from travel hubs. I'm curious now to ask how that plays out in the case of discovering new pandemic-capable viruses and indeed uh, doing things like gain-of-function research with those viruses or other ones. Uh, yeah, what is the worry there? Why do we think that identifying a pandemic virus might be helpful in preventing natural pandemics? Well, you might imagine it could let us monitor the environment for that virus and help prevent it from spilling over by just reducing exposure to the animals that carry it. You might imagine that maybe we could develop antivirals or vaccines in advance, except there we're crippled because if it's never infected a human before, we can't actually test any of our vaccines or medicines in phase two trials. So, but the real problem is, let's just assume that identifying a pandemic capable virus would let us perfectly prevent it from spilling over. The problem is in order to get people to believe that and take action, we would have to share its genome sequence and our evidence suggesting that it's pandemic capable. And that means that some tens of thousands of people who have the laboratory skills could build that virus from synthetic DNA and single-handedly let it go, thereby causing a deliberate pandemic. You can't have one without the other. And there's lots of pandemic-capable viruses in nature, probably hundreds. So if you identify one of them, you might perfectly prevent one pandemic, say, in the best-case scenario but there's only a one in a hundred chance that that one actually would have jumped in this century. Whereas as soon as you put the instructions online, what's the risk that someone will use them every year? 1%? If so, then you just expect that pandemic will happen sometime in the next century deliberately. And so you're at deliberate pandemics are probably a hundred times more likely to kill people in expectation than are then will identification save people from natural pandemics? Okay, just to try saying that back to make sure I'm getting it. So I guess the idea here is that uh, I can go into this kind of research with very good intentions, right? I want to you know, identify pandemic-capable viruses in the wild. And like you say, there are many of those out there. Um, and there are some real uses for this. You know, it can help, help us spot those viruses in advance, help us develop countermeasures in advance, and so on. That's pretty good. Uh, but here's a downside. In order to do anything with this genetic information I'm collecting, I presumably need to share it with the world. But sharing the genetic material of pandemic-capable viruses with the world just looks wildly dangerous and irresponsible. And so much so that if you just try doing the even rough back-of-the-envelope calculation about whether this kind of work actually makes the world any safer against these uh, biological threats on nets, 
it ends up looking positively counterproductive and by some margin. Is that roughly right? Yeah. In general, always put numbers on your priors. You know, add your magnitude, add your uncertainty, check it out. In this case, it looks like you're going to kill 100 times as many people as you're going to save, even given some of the most optimistic assumptions favoring pandemic virus identification. And when it's just that skewed at the outset, it's pretty clearly a bad idea. And the problem in this case is that no one seems to have just put numbers on it in that way. <laughs> yeah, that's a great lesson. Uh, Jonas, I guess we're talking now about the idea of transfer risks. Uh, so this is where, I guess, certain kinds of research in apparently safe contexts uh, stand some chance of spilling over and causing damage in other contexts. Um, yeah, one of you could say more about transfer risks. Okay, so... Kevin talked about how the discovery of an identification of pandemic-capable viruses features potential for misuse. Similarly, gain-of-function research features potential for misuse because it exactly sets out to generate potential pandemic pathogens that then we might want to prepare against. But actually, this virological research is only the tip of the iceberg that is really a broader set of scientific research that is driving the capability to create viruses and engineer viruses. And this is because fields that have not been classically associated with research risks, such as gene therapy, cancer research, um, vaccine development, all of these are now engaging in the engineering of viruses for delivering therapeutics. And the problem is that some of the methods developed as part of these efforts are then transferable to pandemic pathogens. And you might picture it in a sense that inadvertently, these scientists are picking up the same strategies that historical biological weapons programs are using and have used. Um, so the Soviet biological weapons program, they explored the different genetic modifications on a non-pathogenic pathogenic cousin of smallpox virus to then transfer these to smallpox virus. And similarly, transferable insights from different efforts to generate gene therapies and vaccine development, etc., might be transferable to pandemic pathogens. Okay, okay. Let me see if I can just get clear on everything we've been talking about so far. So I guess the first thing we talked about was this idea of going out into the world uh, and trying to identify uh, new natural pandemic-capable viruses in the wild. Um, and that looks uh, fairly risky for reasons we've discussed. Then I guess, continuous with that, there is gain-of-function research, which can involve you know deliberately modifying a pathogen to make it more virulent or more transmissible, for instance. Um, and then it sounds like there is this broader class of risks involving uh, the transfer of insights between different contexts. Am I thinking about all of that in the right way? Yes. So gain of function research is what we know is risky, and that is the enhancement of potential pandemic pathogens, really. But what we're developing are transferable methods for the enhancement of or, or viruses, including potentially transferable to the enhancement of pathogens. And the problem is that increasingly researchers across a whole breadth of research areas 
are driving towards platform approaches, driving towards general purpose methods that enable the modification of a broader class of viruses, including potential pandemic pathogens. And thereby, it's actually not just gain-of-function research, enhancement of potential pathogens, potential pandemic pathogens directly, that is driving the capability to create them, but it is a broader class of research. And this broader class of research hasn't been traditionally associated with these risks of misuse. And we want to start a conversation around that that is necessary to prevent the proliferation of the ability to create pandemic viruses. You know, if I, if I might jump in just to summarize, there are many different areas of research throughout the biological sciences that could be used to create novel classes of pandemic-like agents. We can call them pandemic class agents. And the researchers developing these areas generally are not thinking about misuse concerns at all. It's just not something on their radar. They, their fields have never historically been linked to security concerns. And they're certainly not thinking about how their work could lead to the proliferation of pandemic class agents, which we know from COVID can kill more people than nuclear weapons. And the question is, do we always want to highlight this? Because it's not clear that we can necessarily delay it all that long. And it's not totally clear that highlighting it isn't going to be net positive. And just to draw out that thought, um, I guess there are at least two effects from highlighting a risk. One is, presumably, you get conscientious, sensible people to move away from the risk, and that's good. Um, but the other is that you draw attention to the risk, including, I guess, the attention of more uh, reckless people. And so you get this very tricky problem, which is how loudly should you be raising these alarms? And it's not at all clear in many cases. So if we think there are potentially many different ways of, say, making viruses more transmissible, then what should we do? This is an open question where the two of us debate it frequently in terms of which side is, you know, which side do we expect will end up saving lives? And I think it's important to emphasize that, at least I don't think that this is a winnable battle in the long run. That is, there's too many plausible ways of making viruses more transmissible. We will eventually lose. Someone well-meaning and naive is going to describe how to do it, probably not in that context. Someone else well-meaning and naive will see the potential for misuse and attempt to overtly warn the world, thereby drawing the world's attention to it. And someone else well-meaning but naive will check to see whether or not it is possible by trying it themselves and then publishing it. And it's important to note that none of these things can be believably done by actual malicious actors. That is, people who want to threaten the world with pandemics can't very well claim to have pandemic class agents and show data suggesting that they do because we wouldn't believe their data. It's easy to fake. But if someone well-meaning does it because they're trying to save the world from natural pandemics, that is believable. And malicious actors can then threaten to misuse that data. So the irony is we could actually stop people from doing this if we could persuade the scientific community that this was a bad idea. 
And that's why I've been advocating for a pandemic test ban treaty. There's a fairly narrow set of experiments required to determine whether a virus is plausibly pandemic capable. So it doesn't matter how you make it. Let's assume there's lots of different ways of making something that could become transmissible enough to spread like a pandemic. But if we banned the experiments that let you determine whether or not a particular virus was or was not, we don't have to restrain the rogue actors. We just need to restrain the good guys because they're the only ones who can do it credibly. And that might be feasible. But even there, eventually we're going to lose and someone's going to do it. And this is why I tend to worry more about what you might call lone wolves than I do actually about sophisticated state-level bioweapons programs. Because I expect that we're eventually going to lose this battle and the blueprints for pandemic viruses are going to be public, in which case anyone with the relevant skills can build it for not very much money. Okay. What does losing the battle mean? Yeah, I mean the battle to prevent the proliferation of pandemic class agents. Right now, nine nations have access to nuclear weapons that can kill millions of people. We know that pandemic viruses can kill millions of people. But right now, we don't know of any credible examples that would take off and kill millions of people in a new pandemic. There just aren't any. But we assume we're going to lose the battle to keep that number at zero. Sooner or later, it is going to be a positive number. And then it is all about how can we attempt to reduce access to minimize the number of people who can in order to give us enough time to build reliable detection systems and defenses that would allow us to suppress and eliminate any given pandemic. Okay, got it. That was very useful. Um, I was worrying a bit that some people might hear what you said earlier and just think, oh, Kevin is just incredibly doomy and pessimistic about <laughs> biosecurity in general. He thinks that, okay, maybe we can and maybe we should hold off for a few more years, but uh, in the end, the world will just be, you know, indefinitely like ravaged by pandemics. <laughs> but it sounds like, in fact, um, yes, at some point we should expect this, uh, a much greater proliferation of pandemic capable viruses where just many more people have access to and uh, knowledge about just very risky, dangerous uh, pathogens. However, in the long run, presumably there are reasons to expect that we can end up in this biosecure world where defense wins out. Um, what matters is what happens between now and then. And of course, that we eventually get to uh, then. <laughs> um, I mean, and that we actually reach then. Um, and yeah, as such, one important challenge is delaying this especially risky research to give us time to build up that defensive capability. Um, is that roughly right? It's exactly right. Delay, detect, defend. You got to delay until you can detect and defend. Yeah, so when I think about delaying, I think there are really three buckets. And I think we've covered the first one, which is kind of stop the most risky research that leads to the proliferation right away. But then I think the second bucket is responsible access to certain yeah, genomes, materials, protocols, etc., that enable the misuse of that knowledge. And then the last bucket is 
goes a bit more again into the direction of differential technology development and comparative risk assessment and really shifting our biotechnology portfolio towards the less risky side of things. And I think um, maybe, yeah. So I think we can zoom into the responsible access first, which I think, um, yeah, so responsible access. So I think the big thing here is DNA synthesis screening. And I think Kevin is probably better suited to talk about that. But I think next to DNA synthesis screening, there is also a consideration around should every genome, every blueprint for a pathogen or any virus be publicly accessible? And that is the status quo at the moment. But yeah, I, I argue maybe it shouldn't be. Maybe there are certain genomes that we do not want to share with all researchers, all scientists, the whole public. Maybe there are certain genomes that we want to be selectively sharing with certain stakeholders like vaccine researchers. Maybe it's fragments of genomes that we want to be sharing with those people. And I think we need to develop systems for responsible access to these genomes to hand it out more selectively and to ensure that everyone that accesses these genomes has uh, yeah, the required credentials and actual legitimate use purposes. And I think one precedent here is the handling of patient data, where already existing databases um, are, because of privacy concerns, highly regulated. And you could imagine that from those databases, we might be using some of the access systems that are in place where people have to acquire permission to take a look at certain data. And you could imagine those being transferred and applied also to genomes of certain concerning pathogens. Yeah, I see. And I guess one thought here is, well, in order to access a uh, medical patient's full record for some research I'm doing, I better have a really strong like, overriding reason to be able to do that. And that's because we place a ton of value in patient confidentiality and privacy. Um, seems like a good norm. And then the analogy is, well... <laughs> Here's another thing we really care about, we really value, and that is making sure another pandemic uh, doesn't happen again. And as such, maybe we should consider similar norms, um, which don't just hand out access to genomes and protocols and materials um, so easily, but instead kind of similarly require these like really strong reasons before that happens. Yeah, exactly. And I think scientists have such a large responsibility. They are the stewards to, yeah, creating life, reshaping whole ecosystems, like Kevin mentioned. And I think really we need to, yeah, appreciate that and develop systems in which you can ensure that that responsibility is taken seriously, that that responsibility is, is assigned in a way and um, credentialed that then ensures that, yeah, we don't f see any illegitimate access to these materials. Are you saying that me and my students all need background checks? maybe even full-time surveillance whenever we're in the laboratory just to make sure we're not doing anything nefarious? Because at the end of the day, if these technologies become freely available to everyone, the answer is probably yes. Most of my students can make, can make viruses. For accessing certain genomes, <laughs> maybe you should be requiring that. For accessing certain protocols, maybe you should be requiring background checks, yes. But, but I'll go even further and suggest, and this, this is what makes me unpopular with most of my virologist colleagues, Virtually 
every experiment that you would need to do in order to develop vaccines or antivirals, including antibody treatments for viruses, does not require you to know the full genome sequence of the virus in question. And that's especially true if you're developing broad spectrum vaccines and antivirals, which are really the only ones you can develop in advance. Because remember, you know, we go out and search a bunch of bats, we find a pandemic capable virus, we're pretty sure would take off if it ever spills over into humans. We can't test vaccine candidates against that virus because that would require infecting a bunch of people with a virus of unknown lethality that we suspect might be pandemic capable. And some of them would have to be in the control group and wouldn't receive any therapy at all. There's no way that we're going to do that. It's called a challenge trial on a virus that could kill people that might never actually infect humans at all. We're just not going to do that. But if you're developing something that you think is broad spectrum, you can test it against the relatives that do infect people. Or you can test it against animals, obviously. But the point is, if it's broad spectrum, it's actually useful. You can get approval. You can stockpile it in advance. But to develop something broad spectrum, the whole point is you don't need to know whether it works against any given agent. You want to know, does it work well across randomly chosen examples from that entire family of viruses? And the same is true for antiviral drugs. They usually target the ability of the virus to infect, to replicate within host cells, or sometimes processing enzymes that are required for some aspect of the viral life cycle. None of those experiments requires you to have an intact wild type, as we call it, virus that could be dangerous. And that means you don't need to sequence the whole genome. You certainly don't need to share the whole genome in order to get the information required to develop these kinds of therapies. Okay, so let me make sure I'm understanding the claim here. Uh, so I guess Jonas has suggested this norm of only very selectively sharing entire genomes, or at least requiring you know strong reasons to access them. Um, and then you're saying, Kevin, that we can also just not share entire genomes, but instead snippets of them. Um, and this probably isn't such a hard thing to do, probably wouldn't be especially inconvenient for people, because in fact, most research here uh, doesn't require the full genome. And if you leave out a small piece, then you can't assemble that virus and boot it up and make it infectious. Now, is that going to fly? The answer is no. And so we're going to need Jonas's solution of, you know, limited permitted access to certain things in some cases. But for most of the things, I think we could change the norm to, yeah, you, you sequence it, but you leave out a critical piece. And you can choose that piece such that it means you can't boot up the virus, but you can develop all of the kinds of vaccines and therapies that you would want to develop. So within responsible access, we've now talked about kind of the access to the genetic blueprints of potential pandemic viruses. But then access to the materials is the other crucial question. And this is where the Secure DNA project comes in. Okay, interesting. Do either of you want to uh, say more about this Secure DNA proposal? So the idea is you want to ensure that anyone who places an order for synthetic DNA to some commercial DNA synthesis company or types it into a machine that can spit out the DNA, which is sort of the next generation technology, that that order is screened to make sure they're not making, say, some pandemic pathogen. How can you do that? Well, historically, it's been challenging because people tended to use what's called a similarity search algorithm, 
which is great for determining how related two things are, but it's pretty terrible for reliably detecting a hazard. So secure DNA originated when we said, you know, instead of doing that, what we need to do is figure out some way that can fully automate the screening process. So you don't need humans in the loop. And that's critical because especially if there's a device on your benchtop that you bought so that you can enter in an order for the DNA you want and it will spit it out a few hours later. You really don't want to wait for a bunch of humans somewhere to have to take a look at it to see if it's okay. And that means you need some algorithmic screening process that doesn't throw up false alarms. So we figured, how can you do that? Well, essentially let's look for sort of signatures, pieces of the relevant DNA sequence that we think is hazardous. But we want to ensure that we don't just look for the exact virus in nature. We want to include all of the ways that some adversary might change that while preserving its function. So the way we do that is we take that signature and we ourselves predict all of the different ways that you can vary it while still keeping it functional. And then we check all of those sequences against all of the DNA that humans have ever sequenced. And we throw out anything that matches something unrelated. And this way we ensure that as long as you're ordering something that is in some database that humanity has sequenced before, that isn't obviously a hazard, it's not gonna be blocked in a DNA synthesis order. That is, we've basically eliminated that entire class of false alarms. And the benefit of this is because we're not using similarity search, we're not only more accurate, but we can also apply cryptography. That is, the algorithmic process of screening is efficient enough that you can use cryptographic methods to screen that protect the identity of the order. Because of course, to a biotech or pharma, if you give me a list of all the DNA they've ordered, I can give you a pretty good summary of their research pipeline. So they consider that to be a trade secret. So we need cryptography to protect that information. But also thinking down the road, we should expect future discoveries to make it possible to make, say, pandemic class agents in a variety of different ways. And we're probably gonna spot some of these in advance before they become widely known. It'd be lovely if we could restrict people's access to hazards without highlighting them as being hazardous. And the cryptography would also let us do that. So this is our attempt to solve the near-term problem. Let's screen all DNA synthesis by inventing a fully automated process that works on all devices that we can offer for free to the world. And then if we can get it to be basically universal, then later on, we can work to add emerging hazards and that will both limit access to emerging hazards that are not yet publicly known without highlighting them. And it can even nudge people away because the dirty little secret is that those of us in labs are supposed to get permission for pretty much any experiment that we run. That is, if you have a clever idea for working with DNA from some other organism to do something, you're supposed to ask your institutional biosafety committee for permission to run that experiment. And in reality, if you have a clever idea, you're not gonna fill out all the paperwork to figure out if it works or not. You're gonna order your DNA, you're gonna get it next day, you're gonna run your quick proof of principle experiment, and if it works, and you're going to launch a new project, that's when you're going to go to all the trouble of updating your, your registry of the things you're allowed to do. And so the idea here is we would just require people to do 
what they're supposed to be doing anyway. That is, if they hit an emerging hazard or a decoy, because of course we can't only put emerging hazards, that'd be telling. You put in the things you're worried about and a bunch of things that might be plausibly worrisome in there. And anyone who hits one of them just wouldn't be able to get their initial DNA. They'd have to go through the bureaucracy first. So you're not forbidding anything. You're just adding an extra level of annoyance if you want to work with something that might be dangerous. And that's exactly what we want. We just want to nudge people away gently without forbidding them from doing something that they think really would be amazing and transformative and beneficial. You just want to nudge them. And so that's what secure DNA is all about. Yeah, okay, okay. This is, yeah, making me imagine some kind of world in which, I don't know, it turns out to be possible to uh, print a nuke <laughs> with some kind of insane 3D printer, right? And in this world, let's imagine that 3D printers are becoming uh, more and more accessible, right? So I used to have to, uh, you know, mail off to my local 3D printing service, and that was very expensive. Now I can just about begin to afford um, such a printer in my garage. And, you know, in that world, it might be nice to agree on some protocol to, you know, screen for when I'm sending off for anything that resembles a nuke. Um, <laughs> at least make it more frustrating, more difficult um, to do that. And hopefully just stop people from building nukes this way. Um, and I guess this is a at least somewhat similar thoughts. Um, but it feels like there's lots of moving parts here. And there are a few things I wanted to zoom in on. One thing is the incentive story here. So if I'm, I guess, either an equipment manufacturer uh, making these machines, these DNA, DNA synthesizing machines, or I'm a buyer in a lab, um, what reasons do I have to voluntarily include this little add-on, which you know screens for things I'm synthesizing, it imposes a very small delay, presumably, and then occasionally just doesn't let me do things that I want to do, and that's about it. Why should I be uh, attracted to that? So one of the most inspiring stories about all this is that a number of companies in, in the DNA synthesis industry, in fact, most all of the big players are members of what's called the International Gene Synthesis Consortium, which voluntarily screen orders for public hazards. And they do so even though their current screening systems throw up a bunch of false alarms that require them to hire PhDs in biology to look at all of these false alarms to determine whether they're real or not, which is a miserable job. And everyone I've known who does it hates it, but they feel that it's really important. And so they do it anyway. But of course, not all companies screen. And the problem is that most of the ones that do generally are IGSC members, which raises obvious security problems. You really need just about everyone to do it. So for the current IGSC members, it's an easy value proposition. If we come up with a system that is better than what they currently do, that would cost them less money and spare them this painstaking work, yet they're confident that it will be as good. And we offer it for free because it's fully automated, so it costs very little. We can just cover that philanthropically, thanks to Open Philanthropy and FTX. Then free is a very good price. We should outcompete every, every other screening system available if we can offer it for free. And ideally, that will include the other well-meaning folk who are solving the near-term problem in ways that don't allow cryptography and therefore don't allow screening of future emerging hazards. The downside is what about all the people who don't currently screen? Free is a very good price now, but it's currently free for them to do nothing. So the question is, how are we going to get them on board? 
And the answer there is some combination of norms, expectations, liability, and eventually straight up market requirements. So here, what's interesting is the Biological Weapons Convention, which has been signed by nearly every country in the world, has an article which says countries must essentially do everything in their power to prevent people from acquiring biological weapons within their territory. And in practice, no one does anything on this because that would mean taken literally that they should all require DNA synthesis screening already. But they don't because that would of course put their local companies at a disadvantage because it's a significant cost. And they don't want to disadvantage their companies versus everybody else's. But by making it free then we can say, hey, look, here's an easy way to fulfill your treaty obligation. And then we just need a few of the larger markets to actually require it in compliance with this treaty they've already signed, which would then cost them nothing. Yeah, okay, got it. And I guess I'm imagining some just ideal outcome here, which is presumably some kind of you know, international agreement or coordination where basically every you know, major player uh, agrees on using this screening protocol or something like this screening protocol. And yeah, like if using the protocol is just pretty cheap and straightforward, like, you know, in practice, it's, it's just a small delay on synthesizing things. And it just very rarely like meddles with what you're synthesizing, as long as it's not dangerous. Well, you know, it's not like there's going to be some knotty coordination problem there. It could just be in every player's obvious interest, not to be the jerk that doesn't side onto this like extremely low cost way of screening for potential catastrophes um so yeah i guess that's a reason for optimism if we can get to that point um anyway here's one extra question i had which is maybe the system is in place and um say i'm a researcher and i've identified a genome that seems concerning to me so i want to somehow slot it into the protocol such that if anyone tries to synthesize that that genome uh, it gets blocked what do I do then? Who do I, who do I speak to? That's a great question. So you would need to contact the local curator for the secure DNA system, who would probably need to be someone authorized by your government. So this is not perfect because in some countries, of course, we should assume that the curators will all be required to report whatever it is that they think is hazardous and learn about through this process to their government. So that's not ideal, right? Someone identifies a new nasty potential pandemic class agent their government learns about it. But that's a heck of a lot better than them publishing a paper on it and telling the entire world about it. Because if their government is a great power, they probably have nukes already anyway. And in fact, one of the great challenges is how do we ensure that governments sign on to this? So Secure DNA has been an international collaboration from the beginning, which we've been working with Chinese and European colleagues in a sort of a science diplomacy effort, deliberately not involving any representatives of any government, but keeping them all informed. Because if you have any involvement by US government, then China won't sign on and vice versa. So one of the challenges is keeping the governments out of it until we can solve the problem by working with industry. And then once everything is in place and we've learned from both sides that it needs to be hosted by a Swiss nonprofit and so forth, that then we can invite the governments to start requiring it. Got it. Jonas, anything you want to add on this? I think it's worth highlighting, Kevin mentioned some of these other more yeah, short-term oriented efforts in the space. And I think, yes, some other yeah, particularly promising projects include that of the Nuclear Threat Initiative bio program. We're doing some work on this as well. 
um, that is yeah, particularly also focused on more the international engagement at this stage. And um, yeah, I, I, and yeah, the, yeah, there's just a range of actors. Security NA is only one of well, one particularly uh, yeah mindful project in a yeah in a space of many other actors here. Sure. And what is that space here? Well, I think actually there are many other DNA synthesis screening like proposals as well, Kevin. Right? Like I think it's not just NTI Bio and um, Security NA. I'm aware of a couple of for-profit startups. Yeah, I think they're like a few for-profits. Yeah. They're, the, all the ones that I'm aware of are focused on this question of what is and is not a hazard and distinguishing between a, you know, a strain that is on the government list and a close relative that may or may not be of the same species and so forth, which is not really solving the problem on either side. The difference between our approach and NTIs is that we're focused more on the technical side of the problem, identifying hazardous sequences. They're more focused on the customer-focused side of the problem. That is, how do you deal with the export control regulations in terms of identifying which customers you have to deal with export control over, and how can you screen your customers to determine whether you're willing to sell them DNA at all, and which levels of DNA and hazards and so forth. Um, and, and normalizing the standards internationally. Um, but they are also developing a technical approach, which is great. I mean, the best technical approach should win. From my perspective, though, any technical approach that doesn't include the cryptographic methods is really limiting our options because you need the cryptography in order to address future emerging hazards. And from my perspective, as someone who actually does run a biotech lab, we're going to need that. Yeah, I think that one thing that's on my mind here is, however, this coordination issue and like, how do we ensure that all people trying to achieve the goals are working together and these approaches in the end can complement each other. And I think that is really where I think, yeah, we need to do good work in talking to each other and keeping up to date and kind of dividing and conquering the project and the problem rather than like each doing our own thing. And I think this is yeah something that we can probably do better on. And we just meaning the various nonprofits who are interested in the same thing here? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I think, yeah, w w one thing that I, yeah, that's on my mind with Security NA, I think it is a very like good approach that like is very mindful, but I think it also has these many if steps to roll out. And I, that that means that I think, Kevin, if I understand correctly, that I think there's quite a bit of hesitation to move too early un until like the, the foundations are in place. And I think that can obviously then mean that maybe we A, lose valuable time in the, in, in the short-term space, but B, potentially that also other solutions, say a government mandates DNA synthesis screening now, then all these for-profit startups pop up. And um, that, that means that, that this space is filled potentially and it becomes more difficult to create a universal mechanism. Okay, so there's a path dependency type worry here. Potentially, potentially. And Kevin, yeah, may, maybe you should maybe say like if you don't want this to be included or something, but I, 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 mean, I don't know. I, I broadly disagree. I'm not particularly worried yeah. about for-profits yeah. because yeah. A, they can't use our approach because we've actually filed on it. And B, how is a for-profit going to compete with free? 
So no, I, I, I'm mainly more, I'm mainly more worried that the U.S. or China will try to do something on their own, thereby making the other government mistrusted, rather than I'm worried that the, some early mandate would be a problem. Um, and I don't think that the Swiss nonprofit has to be established and in place before we offer it as a solution to various people. We're still a consortium of academic groups, and if you know, yeah, the Western suppliers don't want to deal with our Chinese colleagues, and the Chinese suppliers don't want to deal with us, but we'll, we'll deal with our Chinese colleagues, and this is fine. So we can work with everyone. It's not it's not really a big deal in that sense. Um, and yeah, where, whereas the, the U.S.-China tension thing really is a big problem. And that is a potential landmine for, I think, anyone who is on one side more than the other. Okay, so zooming out, I guess we've been talking broadly about ways to delay uh, risky forms of research. Jonas, is there anything you want to add on this when we're thinking about new norms or directions for uh, getting safer against biological threats? So earlier, I highlighted these three buckets and that I think about the delay approach. And I think it's so, yeah, reiterate, it's kind of not doing the most risky stuff, responsible access, including DNA synthesis screening. And I think the last thing is shifting our biotechnology portfolio to its less risky angles. And really, one thing that we've discussed earlier is the fact that more, that really a lot of research of biotechnology is dual use. A lot of research has potential for misuse. And that amount is only growing. And it's not just the top fraction of research that we should be caring about with regard to mitigating risks. So really, what I think we should do is we need to take a look at biotechnology more broadly and really think about how can we reduce risks across our, our portfolio. And one thing that I think would be helpful here is to move away from only deciding which project is going to be funded based on the promise and then assessing risks in a second step, but rather move towards comparative risk-benefit assessment. So the idea is that you would evaluate all the different projects based Often based on their benefits and risks, and then factor risks into the decision of whether to fund a project in the first place. And you might argue along the lines of, among all high risk, uh, among all high promise projects, you want to preferentially fund those associated with the least risks. And one example being here for developing gene therapies, you might, for instance, preferentially fund non-viral approaches that do not advance viral engineering over approaches that involve viral engineering. But if you find that viral engineering approach is actually the highest promise, then within those, you might fund mechanisms that of, of viral engineering that are not heritable and hence are not passed on to viral progeny onto and onto kind of the offspring of transmissible viruses and hence fund non-heritable research over heritable viral engineering methods. So the idea is then by doing kind of this comparative risk-benefit assessment, we would shift our biotechnology research portfolio towards the less risky spectrum without actually sacrificing any benefits. Okay, let me try saying that back because I 
I am just completely naive as to how, uh, you know, funding review works. So I'm applying for funding for a project. It sounds like hearing what you're saying, um, there's some initial process of evaluating the upsides of my proposed research, right? You know, how good this could, could this be? How promising is this? And then as a kind of second layer, there's some, you know, check that, that this isn't imposing some obvious risks. And your claim is, well, it makes a lot more sense just to consider something closer to the, you know, expected value of this research, which is to say, considering the costs and the benefits together, because when you do that, you might find that um, all else equal, um, those proposals which don't pose obvious <laughs> risks are just going to beat out in, in a much more kind of clear and and kind of comparable way, beat out other kinds of research, which do, you know, pose these complications of risks. And that should be much clearer than it currently is now. Is that, yeah, roughly right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think it's really differential technology development to some extent in action, where it's preferentially advancing low risk avenues to solve a certain problem before considering advancing high risk options. I think one thing that's interesting is also that kind of every scientist doing any kind of virological research, for instance, always puts in, oh, helpful for vaccine development, helpful for like diagnostics, et cetera. And I think what might also help us on this road is actually developing a more differentiated understanding of how close a research project is in the chain to actually informing those kind of benefits. And I think then, so so I think it's not just becoming more differentiated in our understanding of risks, but also our understanding of benefits. And then really weighing those two off against each other and, and making sure that, yeah, we're funding the biotechnology research with the highest expected value and hence optimizing for the best possible societal outcomes. All right. So we've been talking about delaying risky research. That is one bucket. There's one way to get safer against biological threats. Um, another bucket might be detecting those threats when they emerge. Um, so could you say something about that? What's the challenge there? And also, how does it tie into uh, this nucleic acid observatory proposal? So the challenge of detection is how can you reliably detect any biological threat? No matter what it looks like, no matter how it shows up in the clinic, whether it shows up in the clinic, whether it's in the environment, whether it's anywhere else, how can you find it no matter what? And this might seem like a major challenge, but it's actually fairly straightforward because the reason why biology creates these kinds of catastrophic risks is that it can self-scale. It can spread autonomously and exponentially on its own from a single site of release or multiple sites of release across the whole world without requiring any further human intervention. What that means is that any serious biological threat must spread exponentially. So the idea of the nucleic acid observatory is let's sequence enough nucleic acids out there from wherever we think might be a problem that we can look for patterns of exponentially spreading nucleic acid fragments. That is short sequences, that are spreading together, whether exponentially at a single site, or if we have a network of multiple sites, which ones start appearing together at many of our different sites that we're monitoring. 
And the hard part about this is that it requires us to do what's called untargeted metagenomic sequencing. We have to sequence all the nucleic acids out there. I mean, we can separate out for viruses if that's what we're looking for, or bacteria, or whatever. We don't have to do it all in one pot. But it means that there is not necessarily any benefit that you can't get by looking for specific things other than the reliable detection itself. So the challenge that we're facing is this is really only something that is absolutely required for defense against all possible threats. Any of the standard public health benefits against known things, what are the levels of this or that pathogen in a given city, you can figure out all of that stuff more cheaply using other methods. But none of those other methods are reliable in the sense that if we attempt to rely on them, any remotely competent adversary will be able to build something that will blow through our defenses and we won't even see it. Yeah, it makes sense to me, I guess, if you are only screening for those known obvious threats, and maybe that's a bit like only installing uh, fire alarms in houses that have had fires previously, or only installing burglar alarms in houses that have previously been burgled. Uh, and maybe that's especially bad if like arsonists and burglars exist and know what you're doing. Um, anyway, I wanted to ask about exponential growth. You mentioned in um, curious why why this possibility of of exponential growth is the thing that seems to seems to matter so much. Yeah, if it's not exhibiting exponential growth, then it's not spreading autonomously, and if it's not spreading autonomously, it's not going to scale to the whole world. So that is the unavoidable signature of any given biological threat. It must spread exponentially. Now, the time frame can change. Right, HIV is a pandemic. It's just its pattern of exponential growth was very delayed relative to, say, COVID. But it's still a pattern of exponential growth that could be detected using the same sorts of methods. The challenge is, you know, lots of things appear to spread exponentially for a little while. So we're going to have to deal with the fact that lots of viruses circulating in many different species are going to exhibit that kind of growth. And so we need to sort out the ones that we think might be threatening from the background and look at them. So in a sense, we're sort of back to what DNA synthesis screening, well, I guess is today, pre-secure pre DNA, where we're gonna need humans to look at it. And Got it. before you ask, yeah, you know, most of the serious threats, you're gonna look at them and you're gonna be like, yep, that's a thing. And so and that's because we can look at things like genetic engineering detection algorithms and say, was this thing engineered? And usually we're going to find signatures that that is the case. But at the end of the day, looking for exponential stuff means we will just find everything. But it is going to require a lot of algorithmic analysis and some human attention. I see. So the thought is, look, any um, pathogen worth worrying about, any kind of biological agent that's going to be potentially doing serious harm, is going to have this feature of spreading exponentially. That's what makes, you know, uh, biological threats so worrying. Um, and so what we should be doing is it's casting a very broad net to look for any agent which has this feature, right? <laughs> and that's a pretty good indication that it's kind of worth um, picking up on. Maybe there's a kind of like analogy to forest fires. <laughs> makes a lot of, you know, a lot of fires peter out pretty quickly. But uh, the big ones started small and spread exponentially. <laughs> So it makes sense to have some 
have some kind of surveillance capacity to find the little, you know, the little sparks early on and control them early on. Um, George, is there anything you want to add on on any of that? Yeah, so I think an additional important like aspect of detection is um, also clinical and met- uh, clinical metagenomic sequencing, but also sentinel metagenomic sequencing. And let me explain what those are. So clinical is basically testing individual humans that come with a unknown an infection of unknown origin potentially into a healthcare center, and then trying to figure out what are they infected with in a pathogen agnostic way. And that can then enable us to potentially identify um, novel pandemic potential agents that are spreading in the population earlier. So some projects already exist in which basically there's a tiered approach in which you first do pathogen-specific testing. And once those fail, you then kind of escalate to a broad panel CRISPR-based diagnostic that can detect a wide variety of different pathogens. And if that fails to detect it, then you escalate further to the truly pathogen-agnostic sequencing, uh, metagenomic sequencing mechanisms. And the idea is, as metagenomic sequencing technologies for such clinical diagnosis is becoming cheaper, hopefully we can replace more and more of that tiered system with directly doing... um, pathogen agnostic diagnosis and then we might also yeah so 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 that is that is the one aspect and i think the second aspect is sentinel sequencing and i think that is uh you can might imagine for instance sequencing airport workers at heathrow for potential unknown agents regularly and that thereby you might also pick up the spread, the international spread, including of a potentially deliberately released pathogen at those travel hubs. And you might similarly also employ sentinel sequencing in at the animal-human interface where naturally emerging pandemics might arise. So I think that could also be useful to monitor those high-risk occupations for spread of agents. So... I think the difference between, so the reason why the nucleic acid observatory is not focusing on humans, we would love to sequence flight crews. Like that would be our number one human population we would love to sequence. But because most of us are based in the United States where there's all kinds of health privacy concerns and there is not a single universal healthcare system, we view the human sequencing to be shall we say, too logistically and bureaucratically complicated. Whereas a country that has a national health system would not necessarily have a problem just sequencing large numbers of people. Um, that is said, we are talking with um, the Defense Department here in the US about sequencing military personnel because similarly they have their own form of universal health care. And so it might be an American population where that would actually work. So we are focusing on airplane laboratory waste and airport wastewater, and most probably air filters, because those are really good proxies for the kind of travel hub samples that you would need. And But nations that have a national health system, sure, just randomly sequence some number of people that come into the hospital. That's a pretty decent surveillance system that we can also use. And while all of the Sentinel-type stuff has potential flaws, just sequencing some fraction of people who come into the medical system 
basically at random or just for their checkups or whatever, that is a perfectly viable way to implement nucleic acid observatory in countries that can do that. It's just the United States is not one such country. Okay. <laughs> and this is, is this mostly just a coordination challenge? You have different healthcare providers. It's hard to get them to do the same thing. Or is there some extra kind of privacy worry? What's the, the problem? Um, the United States healthcare system is a sucking morass of inefficiency and bureaucratic delay that makes it nearly impossible to do anything systematically or comprehensively or even effectively. And yeah, so I heard. you just don't want to come near it at all <laughs> if you can possibly avoid it. All right. Fair <laughs> answer. Um, <laughs> anything to add, Jonas, on any of that? Uh, no, <laughs> I, I think maybe, I, I mean, yeah, and maybe, maybe it's going a bit too far, but I think it's maybe worth thinking about what the end state looks like in which we have kind of, we, we are yeah. like detecting sufficiently, uh, I, we, we've kind of passed that period of, in which we can delay. And I think in my mind that does potentially look like everyone actually kind of every morning, getting a pathogen agnostic diagnosis test run, for instance, through metagenomic sequencing to check whether some pathogen is getting is infecting you. And then if there is something new, then staying at home. And I think that would basically protect us against the vast majority of respiratory pandemics. Um, but the question is, how do we get there? And um, so it's about getting these technologies to become advanced enough and cheap enough to actually be integrated into our lives in that way. Yeah, just a caveat there is that it, that that does make assumptions about the efficacy of a diagnostic test for a relevant agent that does not always going to apply. But yes, in I think I think it is important to emphasize that you know the nucleic acid observatory is designed to catch everything, but it is expensive and can't have monitoring sites everywhere. But say the CDC and other places are building wastewater monitoring sites everywhere. It's just they're only doing targeted sequencing and targeted detection of agents. So the point is, if the observatory sees a novel threat, then once we know what the sequence is, we can tell all of the targeted folks, please figure out exactly where this thing is everywhere in the world. Develop the diagnostics that everyone can take in the morning every day and get them as sensitive as we want. And in the meantime, then, everyone needs to put on their PPE. In particular, essential workers need to put on their PPE. And it needs to be good enough that people will believe it will protect them. And it needs to be comfortable and stylish enough that they will actually wear it, as COVID has taught us. Yeah, cool. Maybe I have one more question on the detection stuff. Jonas, you you know, mentioned maybe this is kind of, we can imagine a biosecure world some distance in the future in which maybe just most people regularly take some um metagenomic test what what does that like look like am i like spitting into some sort of gadget is this like a a nasal swab maybe it's integrated into your toothbrush okay i like it yeah <laughs> all right i look forward to it <laughs> all right so yeah unless uh either of you had some, anything to add on this kind of detection bucket then maybe we can talk about a kind of last third and last category of of dealing with these risks which is okay there's been some outbreak and now the question is defending against some you know pandemic capable agent so i guess it's just a list of you know interventions here that we can go through maybe one to begin with is 
you know, the star of, of COVID has, has been the pharmaceutical interventions and in particular vaccines, maybe less so therapeutics. Yeah, I don't know if you could say something um, about just how kind of like broadly useful vaccines and medicines are going to be across a kind of range of cases. I'll let Jonas go first. So then I, <laughs> then I can come in and say, well... <laughs> Well, you've already poised my brain, Kevin. <laughs> um, so I think, obviously, in the in the case of the COVID pandemic, we've seen that actually vaccines, after a couple of years, have now, together with a broad onset of natural immunity, led to deaths being significantly lower. And it looks like things are kind of... Yes, setting even further at the stage. So I think one thing that went actually well in the COVID pandemic is vaccine development and the success we saw in in highly efficacious vaccines in a reasonable time frame, which, mind you, is still a year. And if an agent is highly transmissible and very deadly, that is not fast enough. And even Kevin mentioned at the beginning, Omicron spread within 100 days from a single point of origin to 25% of the US population, uh, yeah, I, it, it won't be fast enough for, yeah, vaccines won't be fast enough to cover us in, the, in, in that instance. And I think that really highlights the issue with medical countermeasures that are tried to be, be uh, that try to be pathogen specific. So really, Anything that needs to be tested and designed to be useful against a specific agent probably won't come in time. And therefore, really, the thing that we need to look at specifically are those interventions that help against any pathogen and that we can build and design and distribute before the pandemic starts. And we can then know that it will help against the vast majority of or a large number of, of cases. Got it. Kevin, anything to add on, on that? Um, I'm going to go in the opposite of what I normally do and point out that a broad spectrum vaccine actually is broadly useful. That is, if we develop a pan-coronavirus vaccine that works against all coronaviruses and we give it to everyone every year, then that's great because even an adversary can probably come up with a coronavirus that would get around it, but they have to go to a lot more work right? So that's still very helpful. And if we can hit influenza viruses as well and paramyxoviruses, then we can adenoviruses and I, I could go on. But the point is every group does reduce the risk and it especially reduces the risk of natural pandemics, which are much more likely to come from some families rather than others. So that is still useful. And having the capacity to manufacture a lot of an mRNA vaccine candidate against any given pathogen very, very swiftly is also important because not all natural pandemics are going to spread as fast as Omicron. And not all deliberate pandemics are necessarily going to be released across multiple travel hubs. So it's useful to have that capability no matter what. I'm not saying we shouldn't, you know, none of us is saying you shouldn't invest in mRNA vaccines or DNA vaccines that can be rolled out very, very swiftly. We should. So the world is going to do that whether we say they should or not. The problem is they're going to think that's enough. They're going to think that 
mRNA vaccine capability is going to be enough to stop future pandemics. Do we have a vaccine for HIV yet? Last time I checked, the answer is no. And again, Omicron shows that we just can't distribute it fast enough, even if everyone was willing to take it, to really protect everyone. So the, the world's going to do it, but then the world's going to rest on their laurels thinking they've solved the problem. And so we have to emphasize this is not actually the case. You have not solved the problem just because we can make an mRNA vaccine inside of a week, make 10,000 doses, launch a combined phase one and two clinical trial in ring vaccination format to try to contain a nascent outbreak and extinguish it before it spreads around the world. We should absolutely be able to do that, but that is not a reliable defense. No sensible military planner would be satisfied with that level of defense against an adversary. Yeah, with spinning up an army uh, as soon as you <laughs> hear about something, but not doing anything before. Um, yeah, I guess it's kind of tricky, right? Because you want to, it's, it is the case that I guess the story of developing these vaccines is just hugely impressive and commendable. And also relying on vaccines is presumably not enough. Um, so, okay, given this, this uh, consideration, what else can we do? So Jonas, you at least pointed to non-pharmaceutical interventions that might work against a range of uh, threats. What, what could they look like? So non-pharmaceutical interventions kind of there are multiple things that fall into it. And frequently in the COVID pandemic, there actually that word has been used to describe lockdowns, etc. So I think that is something to keep in mind. And there's also non-pharmaceutical countermeasures, which is a bit more that type of like personal protective equipment, etc., etc. So I think that's an important differentiation here. Um, I think non-pharmaceutical interventions, firstly, will be very important. Kevin already alluded earlier to if we detect something, then probably we want most people to stay at home. And the critical bit will here be to keep society running and keep those people protected that actually do that using PPE. And so personal protective equipment, that is really good. And um before we zoom into the personal protective equipment bit, I think one thing that's interesting to think about kind of how the world in which a pathogen that's very deadly is circulating differs from a world of COVID-19 pandemic is potentially that the ethical questions and the kind of dilemmas that you're facing around non-pharmaceutical interventions like lockdowns might look very different. In COVID, we had the issue that young folks had to take a step back from socializing, from going out, going physically to work to protect the vulnerable in the population. But in actually the case where a highly lethal agent is circulating, I think the ethical question will look more like, how can we mandate those people that keep society running to go out? How can we ensure that, yeah, people will be willing to do that. And I think this will require some, yeah, sociological and ethical thinking. But I think one really substantial bit will there also just be, there have to be like really good PPE that protects these people so they feel comfortable going out and you can reasonably get them to do that. So I think it comes back to this question that really, yeah, very good PPE is required to keep a society running in the face of such an agent. Got it. And what does very good PPE mean? I mean, I guess in the first case, we can just stockpile what we already have, but 
How does it get better? Ah, uh, so there's the problem. Stockpiling what we already have won't suffice, right? When in the US, ASPR, the government agency responsible for stockpiling stuff for pandemics, thinks that what they need is gloves and gowns and N95s. And N95 will help you in a measles pandemic. It will slow it down. But it's not going to keep you from getting measles if you're in the same room as with someone else with measles, because measles is well over twice as transmissible as COVID. It lingers in the air for hours after the person has left the room. It's contact transmitted, that is, it gets on surfaces, as well as being very efficiently aerosol transmitted. The typical patient with measles infects somewhere between 15 and 18 other people in an immunologically naive population. So that's the most transmissible virus we know about. That probably means it's near the ceiling of what's just physiologically possible because of course evolution is optimizing for transmissibility, which means what we need to be able to do, our goal is suppose there's three or four different versions of something, of things that are as contagious as measles. Some of them transmitting by aerosols, some of them transmitting by droplets, some of them transmitting primarily by contact with different incubation times and, and different clinical parameters all at once. Can we suppress all of them so that the, their R value, they're on average being transmitted to less than one person while still maintaining distribution of food, water, power, law enforcement, and healthcare? If we can do that, then we win. We're basically immune to all pandemic class agents, human to human transmission. That's the goal. But N95s are just not going to cut it. Now, we do know how to build equipment that can cut it. It looks, I mean, obviously a spacesuit will do the job, right? <laughs> but those are not exactly wieldy and they're kind of expensive. So realistically, you can probably get away with guarding everyone's mucous membranes and just ensuring that you don't touch them and all of the air that you breathe or that gets to your eyes, your nose, your mouth is sufficiently sterile. And this is doable, but we haven't done it yet. And we certainly haven't done it in a way that is, you know, comfortable, can be worn all day, is <laughs> ideally stylish, not too costly, and that people don't contaminate themselves as soon as they take it off. Because of course, even wearing, you know, gear that shields your face all day. Obviously, as soon as you take it off, your nose is going to itch, right? Well, if your hands are contaminated, yeah. So we're going to need ways to for people to reliably take it off without infecting themselves and dealing with their clothes and all that jazz. And it needs to be simple enough that just about everyone can do it. I mean, a tenth of the population are the ones who can handle those key services. So how can we develop that equipment and ensure that people believe it actually will protect them? Because as Jonas said, that's going to be the problem, unlike with COVID. A sufficiently lethal and scary agent that's going to be all about convincing people that, nope, you know, you can go out there and keep the power on because if you don't, society is going to fall apart and things are going to, you know, if the law enforcement isn't out there, then if the food distribution especially fails and law enforcement fails, then desperate people are going to be out there searching for food, transmitting the virus, you know, society is going to break down. We need to keep the distribution networks intact. And that means people need to believe 
that they will be safe. We can build the tech, but we need to build enough of it and we need to ensure that we can distribute it to them, which by the way, I don't think I would typically rely on a government to do that, right? Whereas we know that Amazon can deliver a package to just about everyone in the world within a couple of days reliably. So I think we have all of the you know, operational capabilities we need. We have most of the tech that we need. This is more an engineering challenge rather than a science challenge. That's not true of the, of the other potential top tier defense. Um, but we, can, we, can segue, we can segue to that later. Cool. Is there anything you want to add on PPE, Jonas? No, I think Kevin has said it all. Uh, I would I would actually think, I think you should comment a little bit on public trust, right? When and how do you get people to put it on given current public mistrust of healthcare systems, right? Nucleic acid observatory delivers a warning. First of all, how do we ensure that, say, CDC actually does start looking for it everywhere rather than being like, who the hell are you, all you, you know, privately funded philanthropic bunch of know-it-alls thinking you thinking you have an actual warning system? We don't see anything. <laughs> and then once you do get them to look, how do you get ordinary people to believe it and actually start taking precautions? I'd love to hear Jonas explain that because I'm hoping he has better ideas than I do. <laughs> <laughs> it's tough. <laughs> okay, so I think one challenge associated with kind of PPE and getting people to put on the PPE in the first place is convincing people of the fact that it is necessary and that we are facing a threat that is spreading and it might be a threat that has been detected by something like the Nucleic Acid Observatory. And here it will be really critical to create channels in which we can provide the evidence and can provide kind of, first of all, like convince governments and international organizations, stakeholders that a threat is coming and we're facing one and we are requiring this response. But I think then the second step is really fostering a culture of trust into this scientific and governmental establishment that this kind of, yeah, thing is required. And I think that in the face of what we've seen in the COVID pandemic, is challenging and currently probably does not exist to the right level. But I think here we'll really need to draw on kind of a range of disciplines from psychology to sociology to really think about how can we foster those systems? Because I think these will be extremely crucial to ensuring a collected response against the worst case pandemic agent and keeping society running. <laughs> Same deal with resilient networks, right? Just because you can lock down for a time, if you only have enough for the most essential workers, eventually you're going to run out of key components in your supply chain for which the workers who can produce more of them have not been designated essential and may not have suits. How can we ensure that the distribution networks will actually remain intact? Do you have cities run drills? They're not going to want to run drills. That's a massive economic cost. How do you practice for these things? It's an open question. Yeah, at the same time, like thinking back to the previous question, I do think that if there's something highly lethal circulating, I think people will be fighting over the equipment instead of like 
kind of being uncertain whether to put it on, especially once you actually have some coverage of kind of stuff happening. I think then people are, yeah, to some extent selfish enough to not risk it. And I think in comparison to kind of forced preventive vaccination that is kind of invasive, um, I think getting, putting on a mask is actually less invasive. And hence, I think it does have a better chance of being taken up. But I think then it is about kind of how do you justify who to give this equipment out and how do you ensure that people aren't like stealing their neighbor's equipment, et cetera. And, and I think that will be a huge challenge as well. Yeah, I guess one thing I'm kind of hearing from this is that when we're considering much worse case pandemics, the self-interested motives point in different directions to this pandemic. So for instance, they maybe point in the direction of you know really wanting to use PPE um, and they maybe point um, in the direction of maybe just wanting to stay at home and not go out to work if you're a frontline worker, if you're just, you know, concerned enough, right? So this is just a different set of challenges. Like there's some things we can learn from COVID, but not everything. So I'd love to go into my preferred best <laughs> case solution, which is, which is still a scientific question. Okay, please. <laughs> so wouldn't it be lovely if we could leverage the fact that we are multicellular and all of our adversaries are not. They're either single cells or they're just bundles of protein wrapped around nucleic acid without even a metabolism. I've been thinking for a long time, for quite a few years now since, since gene drive, just trying to think of, is there some way to leverage this? But I was thinking in the wrong place. I was thinking, you know, alpha particles some radioactive materials emit alpha particles, which are very large and heavy in their helium nuclei. And they don't have very much energy, so they don't penetrate very deeply. In fact, they can't really go past the outermost layer of your skin. But they kill microbes very effectively. And so what I was lamenting is, wouldn't it be great if we could just decorate the entire environment with solid samples of radioactive materials that only emit alpha particles? because it would sterilize the air, the surfaces, you know, even the surface of our bodies of everything that could plausibly hurt us. You might have some problems with the, you know, the skin microbiome, but it would be harmless to us. Now, this is a total non-starter, of course, because number one, if you ingest even a little bit of an alpha emitter, it's going to tear you up from the inside. And number two, all of these radioactive materials would be a fantastic source of components for anyone who wanted to make a dirty bomb. So this is obviously never going to happen. But it turns out that we use ultraviolet radiation for germ to make things, it's germicidal, it kills things very effectively because it essentially causes mutations in the nucleic acids. If you go even higher energy to what's called the far UVC, so below 230 nanometers in the sort of higher frequency, lower wavelength, then what happens is it still chews up DNA, but it starts getting absorbed very efficiently by proteins. And we are mostly protein, and we have much bigger cells than single-celled organisms. And our outer layer of even our eyes turns over very quickly within hours. That is, the outer layer of cells of your eyes don't get to sustainably divide. They always they die and get sloughed off on a cycle of a couple of days. And what that means is 
it looks a lot like radiation in this particular wavelength. This kind of light kills microbes, but not us. Doesn't harm us. Some of the first studies of chronic exposure have just come out. And they're of hairless mice that are especially prone to skin cancer. And they just blasted them from above for over a year and saw zero increased risk of skin cancer in these mice. And the preliminary evidence suggests, I haven't been able to read the manuscript in detail, this is by David Brenner's group out of Columbia. Preliminary evidence suggests zero eye damage. And there's some other preliminary evidence there. People have exposed their own skin to extremely high levels of this, that it just doesn't do anything to us at all. Now there's obvious problems in this. There's a few other glaring holes that I would really want people to look at. The skin microbiome, as I mentioned, is a concern. What about all of the single-celled organisms that live on our skin, that is our, our surface ecosystem? How's, what's that gonna do to people with sensitive skin, eczema, things like that? And of course, long-term eye safety in something other than mice would be lovely. There's a lot more safety studies we would need. What happens if people who have, say, scrape their knees? You know, we need to make sure that, that it's safe for that as well. But if we run those studies and they show that it's safe, then the challenge becomes, can we generate this kind of light efficiently enough and equip all of our buildings with it? But we might go further. We might be able to equip wearable devices that will just blast out this kind of light, say, whenever the device hears somebody cough or sneeze near you or even someone talking at a high volume, it can just increase the levels and remove all the pathogens from the air. So again, this would work on everything, surface, aerosol, and in terms of the bursts from a wearable, or perhaps from above, if it just detects how many people are in the room, and if there's more than one person, it increases the levels. You could actually knock down the levels of something like measles before it gets from the person sitting across from you to you. And we know that this is true. What we're confident of is just how well this destroys aerosolized and surface exposed bacteria and viruses. It is more than powerful enough to do the job. The question is, are those fluences safe for people? And if they are, and we can generate it, it's never safe to call anything a silver bullet because it's not, you know, what about the undersides of things? What about more direct contact and so forth? But if the question is, could one particular technology block a measles class agent without requiring everyone to put on the equivalent of spacesuits? This is probably it. And as a side bonus, if you get it cheap enough that you can install it throughout the world, you've just eliminated not just plagues like tuberculosis, but you've basically eliminated the common cold and you know there will be an active incentive to adopt it because if you could reduce the number of sick days that your workers take by half by installing this in all of your buildings, wouldn't you do that? I mean, of course you would do that. Every company will do that. So if we can show that it's safe enough, if it is safe enough, because you know we have to do it in a very careful way, we need to invite concerns and criticism, we need to be comprehensive, we need to do replicates, like all the safety studies have to be done really well. Then if we get lucky and nature is friendly to us, and or rather physics is friendly to us, then this could be an incredibly useful and powerful solution 
to the problem of catastrophic biology. Okay, so that sounds extremely exciting. Um, maybe one last thing to ask about is uh, something like connection-based warning systems, the kinds of apps that we were told to download for COVID. Um, how can they be better? How can they actually help? Yeah, so most of the apps were focused on essentially assisting contact tracing, figuring out who's been exposed so that then they can isolate and avoid passing it on further. But another thing we learned from COVID is that group behavior is tremendously important. People actually started taking precautions once they noticed that infection counts were high, that hospitalizations were high, and especially that deaths were high. The problem is that all those are such lagging indicators that essentially the waves got really, really large before people's sense of caution and behavior changes kicked in. So in principle, suppose you've managed to knock down the measles-like agent and basically eliminate it from your community. How do you know when you should start being cautious again? Because we may not be able to eliminate it from everywhere in the world. What if we're all kind of in the situation that China is in today with COVID? How do you do it without having to weld people into their apartments? <laughs> and the answer is probably you want to let them know what their individualized risk level is. That is, out of the acquaintances that they come in contact with regularly, what fraction of them have been infected? What fraction of the acquaintances of their acquaintances? Or the acquaintances of acquaintances of acquaintances? Out to, say, five different levels. If you can alert them, as soon as anyone in that network becomes infected, then that's an advance warning that they should change their behavior before they're actually exposed. And if everyone does this, then you can actually squelch a nascent outbreak before it begins. So this is a approach that was really pioneered by Po Shen Lo at Carnegie Mellon with an app called Novid. And there's some initial issues in that in terms of they were trying to rush it out during the last pandemic. But what we really need is a better cryptographic approach that is more privacy preserving that would let us set everything up and get it ready, ideally integrated into you know, both Google and Apple OSs so that we would be ready to have it turn on when we actually need it. But it doesn't cause any risk or any, any cost before that. And this is, again, fairly speculative. We need to work out the cryptography and the information security aspects to make sure that it's totally privacy preserving until you turn it on. And once you turn it on, there's always going to be a little bit of cost. But again, cryptography is pretty close to magic and can actually go a long way of preserving privacy even once the system is turned off. Um, so I think some that is another interesting angle of research that would help a lot on the practicalities of keeping something suppressed once you've managed to do the bulk of the work and people are tired and want to go back to normal life. Mm, awesome. And we'll link to this Novid idea because it's actually just a very cool idea to, to read about. Okay, super. So those are some ideas about defending against um pandemics i think maybe one last question kevin is look some people who might be listening to this you know might be in a place to actually help or at least kind of orient their work towards eventually helping if they're a student um yeah i, I was wondering if you could just speak to that person give some sense of what they might do to learn about opportunities, what kinds of skills might be especially valued just in you know, pushing on all the things we've talked about? In general, I encourage folks to go into fields that are actually not biotechnology. And the reason is, as we discussed, 
Omicron shows that biotech is actually uniquely bad at defending against biotech. And this, you know, wounds my heart because I'm in biotech myself. But we do need folks who are already in biotech should reach out. We're trying to build a nucleus of folks developing technical solutions to this in the Cambridge, Boston area. So if you're already in the field, please reach out. But if you're not already in the field, I would recommend going into some more physical sciences related area if you want to help out technically, because you'll note that PPE and far UVC and so forth are really not, and the Novid type thing are really not things that require a lot of bio knowledge. And even nucleic acid observatory only requires a little bit. And heck, even secure DNA is primarily cryptography. So most of these solutions we've been talking about actually don't involve tinkering with viruses in the lab or indeed tinkering with anything biological in the lab. So I recommend people not do the biotech stuff. If you really are interested in bio, then you can absolutely get a PhD in something and then switch over into policy. And that can do a lot of good on the delay front. Um, another thing I would recommend if you're already on the track, you can go into editing at one of the major scientific journals. Right now, we really just don't have editors who are, shall we say, threat aware. In general, most scientific editors just think that all knowledge is worth having and they really don't have a lot of patience with this notion that information hazards are a thing. I mean, after all, if you're in the business of sharing and disseminating scientific information, of course you're gonna favor open science, transparency, open data. I mean, that's what all of their incentives point towards. That's what everyone has been hurrying them to focus on for the last couple of decades. And with good reason, right? In every other field, that is exactly what you wanna see. And here we're trying to carve out this narrow exception. That's always really hard to sway people. And so a lot of the leading journal editors are still taking their cues from the editor-in-chief of science back when they sequenced the 1918 influenza virus, who said, in effect, we would have published the genome sequence of this virus and the description of the study of how they did it, no matter what the security advisory body of the US government said, the only way we would not have published it is if they classified it and threatened to throw us in jail. So that's the prevailing mentality. I, mean, I shouldn't say it's quite that extreme, but that's like the salient example that still holds in science. And I think that's largely driven, people follow the incentive set by the chance of getting a paper into nature science cell. So if you're in the sciences anywhere, becoming an editor would be a highly impactful position. Okay, that's a great answer. Um, Kevin Esfeld, thank you very much. Thanks, Ben. Cheers. So we've covered a lot of things, but we haven't really been fully comprehensive in everything that we could do to prepare against biological risks. I think something that the things that do require mention are genetic engineering attribution. So the question is, uh, can we get really good at tracking where a given pathogen is coming from? And that might then deter malicious actors who release them in the first place. And especially for state-level actors, that might be particularly useful. Uh, recently, we've seen in the wake of the Ukraine conflict, some accusations around Ukrainian biolabs potentially leaking um, bioweapons, that is what Russia has been claiming. And I think if we develop systems to really strongly attribute kind of microbiological organisms, 
or we develop systems in which we can verify that a given laboratory isn't working on a particular pathogen. That can be hugely beneficial. And that brings us to the second topic that I think is definitely worth talking about, which is the Biological Weapons Convention and strengthening that and thinking about how we can create a uh, verification or compliance mechanism that can ensure building of trust, that can uh, foster kind of assurances with regard to, yeah, other people not working on biological weapons, and that can also catch potential state bioweapon programs and, and disincentivize them in the first place. So I think all of those are really, yeah, useful advocacy efforts. Yeah, so I guess there is a kind of broader question here, which is, I actually don't have a very good feeling for how attitudes to these risks from, you know, biological research have changed over the last couple of decades. I'm not sure if there's any you know, historical examples that might be kind of interesting to talk about there. Yeah, so I think this is a really interesting topic because in the early 2000s, especially in the wake of 9-11 and uh, the anthrax um, yeah, terrorist uh, attacks in the US through mail order, um, so a, a single actor distributed um, highly infectious anthrax uh, in, in the US postal system. I think that led to a lot of investment and awareness about the misuse potential of biotechnology. Uh, and I think one really demonstrating factors here that when polio virus was reconstructed for the first time in the early 2000s, there was a huge public discussion around the security implications of this. And yeah, many people feared that kind of this ability to create synthetic versions of viruses would mean that this ability to create viruses would become hugely yeah, proliferating. But then there was kind of a crossroads. Uh, this is how the story goes, that in, um, this is how, what, how I've been told this story, is that in the late 2000s, there was then kind of this like moment of, do we make science more kind of closed off and more kind of, yeah, having all the background checks? Do we securitize science or do we keep it completely open? And what ended up happening um, was kind of really this going down the completely open end and really putting in almost cursory dual-use research of concern guidance in the US that kind of, yeah, didn't really address many of the concerns, but was enough to kind of say, okay, we've done something. But um, it really didn't lead to kind of lasting efforts that would set the tracks for a future that would be safe from these risks. And the interesting part is that compared to the polio virus reconstruction in the early 2000s, nowadays, no one bats an eye anymore when a synthetic virus is being created. And no one bats an eye anymore if, uh, well, a few people do, including, including myself and Kevin and, and others. Um, but yeah, when, for instance, a step-by-step protocol for the synthesis of uh, corona of SARS-CoV-2 is put online uh, without any declarations around doing that kind of synthesis effort only in biocontainment levels and uh, in a way that mitigates risks. So I think that is just hugely mind-boggling how we've just kind of grown 
desensitized to these risks. Right, right. Maybe there's a kind of nuclear analogy, right? Where when nuclear weapons are novel, it's just impossible not to realize how insanely kind of dangerous this new thing is and not to feel that. And then like nuclear weapons still exist, but it's hard to sustain that level of kind of reaction. And so what you want to do is like put things in place when you have the initial fear or the initial kind of concern. Maybe we're kind of assuming that we did that because we're no longer feeling this like really salient concern, but like we haven't. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I think one parallel is also here, kind of the end of the Cold War and kind of post-Cold War nuclear concerns kind of being less big, despite all these weapons still being out there and actually us having made very little progress on this issue. And I think, uh, yeah, similarly, now that kind of the terrorist threat that was so in the public spotlight in the wake of 9-11 has kind of petered out, we're not as concerned anymore about the misapplication of biotechnology, despite biotechnology becoming more and more accessible and more and more powerful, and hence actually the risks increasing. Yep. Um, I guess, yeah, this thing Kevin said earlier, right? Put a number on it. Um, then you can do yeah. the comparisons. Don't just trust the kind of, you know, popular or emotional reaction to some, some issue. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So... How about some last questions? You know, one question is, where would you love to see more work or research being done? And you can be as kind of nerdy or as granular as you want. Are there kind of questions that come to mind that you want to see people working on? Yeah, I think there, there are actually a few that I've been thinking about. Um, I think the first yeah, instance is something that I've kind of talked earlier about and it's goes to this like level of like comparative risk assessment and really being explicit around the expected value of 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 research and i think something that would be awesome i think would be for scientists for for like a collection of of scientists to come up and engage in some kind of um consensus finding mechanism to rank different experiments by their benefits and also rank different experiments at or, or risks and and then use those kind of yeah rough guidelines for corroborated benefits and and risks to then kind of assess experiments on and rank experiments and hence then make informed decisions so i think this would be awesome and um yeah maybe that could be done through like collective decision-making platforms, cooperative AI, like Polis or other yeah. settings, I think. But but yeah, I think this seems just like something that could be really useful. Okay, awesome. Are there any, I guess, existing initiatives in this direction that we can point people towards? Um, yeah, not really. I, I mean, I've been had one discussion with uh, someone at Polis, but not even really specifically about this. I think I'm talking to some people that I might, try to encourage to engage in this. Um, maybe we'll talk to the iGEM folks. But really what I'm trying to build is a coalition of individuals interested in, in this space and then trying to yeah have them make concrete pro progress on this issue. Cool. I really, uh, this idea sounds pretty great to me, right? Um, maybe there's some like AI analogy when um, one way to take this stuff seriously is to survey experts. And once you have the, just a, 
impression of what people actually think, then um, exactly. that's at least a place to begin. Um, you break the kind of pure pluralistic ignorance as well, right? When you're not sure whether other people are concerned about the same things as you. Um, yeah. I think super. a second related yeah. project that I think is interesting is once you have such a framework, then I think um, really we should be leveraging what I call information loops. And the story goes, Donella Meadows tells us in her Leverage Points paper, which is very famous, is that there were two housing communities that were exactly the same. But in one set of houses, the electricity running meter measuring electricity consumption was in the basement. And then the other set of houses, it was in the front room. And in the set of houses where it was in the front room, electricity consumption was found to be 30% less. That showcases the power of information loops, of being aware of risks, even if there are no concrete guidelines of how to act on them. So I think just by generating like a real-time kind of rating of risks of different projects, that could be hugely beneficial and automatically encourage that shift to its least risky alternatives. Because, yeah, every smart and reasonable human that kind of thinks risks are somewhat important in the face of equal benefits. And one project having risk level five and one project having risk level that is lower as two will fund, hopefully, project with the lower risk. Um, and I think once you have a concrete framework, one thing that you could also do is kind of build a computational tool that uh, kind of ranks all kind of past grants or like in, in real time and kind of assigns numbers and then like put all of that up on a website and rank like grant makers by how risky the research is that they're funding and thereby create external kind of like information pressure um, to, for, for people to kind of shift to its least risky uh, approaches. Nice, I like that too. What was the phrase you used? Information loops? Is that Information right? loops, yeah. Okay, cool. I mean, I guess the, the loop aspect is important, right? Where yeah. feedback loops work when they're relatively short and they're relatively yeah. high signal yeah. compared to noise. Um, and so one way this could go wrong is if it's very slow. One thing that comes to mind is the um, Bulletin of the Atomic Sciences doomsday clock. or whatever yeah. yeah. And it's not as if like people are, in fact, there's no kind of like feedback based on this like oh we pushed it back a minute right and we succeeded because it's it's kind of noisy and it's also slow so um yeah you know like this sounds like a challenge but it sounds like one worth taking a punt at cool okay here's a last question we typically ask people for three recommendations this can be books but also you know articles films whatever about everything that you and Kevin have talked about? Yeah, I think there's just like very little good material on the stuff, um, <laughs> which is kind of an issue in itself and yeah. we're hoping to fix. Um, but yeah, I think what I find interesting is like reading about a lot of the nuclear analogies in this space. So yeah, yeah, yeah. of the atomic bomb, all the, the whole story of Leo Szilard and his discovery and, and thinking up of the nuclear chain reaction and then yeah. first not kind of proliferating that idea, but then yeah. in the face of the risk of the Nazis developing the atomic bomb or, or what he at least perceived to be that risk, then approaching the US government to act on that. I think that that story is very interesting, um, but I think only loosely related to what we've been talking about. That's Okay, this is a, that's a fine thing to recommend. So, uh, what's what's a good book here? Like, there's the Richard Rhodes book. 
Yeah, so I think um, I think one book that I really enjoyed is Ellsberg's Doomsday Machine, I think, which obviously captures very concretely the risk that we're still facing and just how absurd the nuclear world is that we live in. Yeah. And, but but it, I think it goes less well into the story of like Leo Szilard, etc. Mm-hmm. I think the making of the atomic bomb um, by Richard Rhodes is very good on this topic. I haven't fully read it myself yet, but I'm currently reading it. Okay, great. All right, we'll uh, we'll put those two things in. Super. Um, so anything else you wanted to say? Otherwise, we can we can wrap up. Um, I and I think I think oh additional. So one additional recommendation that I have for a book mm. is uh, kind of the dead hand. That is very good and probably actually the better hand. than either of the purely nuclear bomb uh, bomb mm. focused books because it does like talk about both nuclear and the biological weapons program in the uh, in the Soviet Union, which I think yeah still is yeah a very yeah illustrating example of kind of the yeah destructive power that biology can have and i think still is hugely informative so i think that is a recommendation awesome okay last last question where can people find you and kevin and your work online uh so we're both on twitter so i i definitely post my research on twitter and on linkedin and sometimes (laughs) it also gets uploaded to the fhi website yeah occasionally Uh, occasionally um <laughs> i think kevin also tweets a fair amount i think kevin obviously also yeah is frequently on podcasts etc yeah. uh, has written Great. quite a bit in op-eds super so I and we'll link to all those things of course yeah, uh, yeah. but for the time being during assembling thank you so much thank you for having me that was Kevin Esvelt and Jonas Sambrink on dual-use research, uh, far UVC lighting, and the delay-detect-defend approach to preparing for pandemics uh, worse than COVID. As always, if you want to learn more, then you can read the write-up, uh, and there is a link in the show notes for that. And there you'll find links to all the books and resources mentioned, plus a uh, full transcript of the conversation. If you find this podcast valuable in some way, then one of the most effective ways to help is just to leave a review wherever you're listening to this. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever. And at the very least, it's just really motivating for us to see feedback like that. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter. We're just at Hear This Idea, and we're planning to post a bunch more there. And also, if you have any more detailed feedback, then we have a new feedback form with a bunch of questions and a free book at the end as a thank you. Uh, It should only take 10 or 15 minutes to fill out, and you can choose a book from a decently big selection of books we think you'd really enjoy if you're into the kinds of topics we talk about on the podcast. And again, there'll be a link in the show notes for that and on our website. Uh, And finally, if that sounds like too much faff, you can send any comments to feedback at hearthisidea.com. Okay, as always, a big thanks to our producer, Jason, for editing these episodes and also to Claudia for writing full transcripts. And thank you very much for listening.